We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. When I hear people talk about their mentors or the great bosses that they had early in their career or the neighbor mom who was just a few years ahead of them in parenthood, Anytime someone mentions that type of a relationship, someone who is a role model or who spoke truth to them when they were young, even someone who was just a really wise friend, it always reminds me of Shauna Nequist. Shauna and I met at a really pivotal time in my life. It was the summer I was 19, I think. Maybe I was 20. We talk about this in the beginning of the episode. And so for now, more than two decades have gone by where Shauna has been a real light for me, someone I can trust, someone I know really gets me, even though we've never lived in the same place. She's just a couple of years older than I am, but her wisdom has been so meaningful in my life. We have a connection that I am so grateful for. Shauna Nequist is an author and a speaker who lives in New York City with her husband, Aaron, and their two boys. She's written five books. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Present Over Perfect, Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, and my personal favorite of hers is called Bread and Wine. In our conversation today, we talk about how we met working at a summer camp a million years ago, and then we also talk about the passage where I write about Shauna in my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. I write about her in chapter two, which asks, who was there, recounting one of the most important conversations of my life when I called her full of heartbreak in Oklahoma, and she answered the phone in Chicago. In this episode, Shauna also answers the question from the book about magical moments, and then she gives a super interesting and important answer to the question that I pose and share your stuff, asking, when did it change? She has something she wants to share with you, answering that question. Shauna and I talk about what belonging means, what we're really saying when we reach out to a friend when we're in pain, and at the end, we talk about books, because that's our favorite thing in the world to talk about, and I could not have her on 10 Things to Tell You and not talk about books. 
So here's my conversation with my longtime friend and mentor, Shauna Nequist. Shauna, I am so, so happy to welcome you to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You are my literal dream guest that I've wanted on forever and ever. Oh, that is the sweetest. And I'm so happy to hear your voice and I connect with you. I have missed you so much. It's so good to talk to you. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. I have missed you too. We have known each other for, I mean, look, I can't do the math, 25 years. Yeah, I think that's true. A really long time. And I want to sort of talk about how we met and how we became friends and then how you wrote about me in a book. And then I wrote about you in a book. (laughs) We're going to talk about our love of books in general and all kinds of things today. But before we get all the way in, I want you to just tell the listeners a little bit about you and who you are and about your writing and your life. Just share with us a little bit about you. I uh, grew up in the Midwest outside Chicago. And two and a half years ago, my family and I moved to Manhattan, which is like a whole thing. Um, Aaron and I have been married for 20 years this year, which is crazy. And we have two boys, Henry and Mac. They are 14 and nine. And I'm a writer. I'm actually, Laura and I were just chatting about this a little bit. We, um, I'm working on a book right now in, and I'm kind of doing it in a way I've never done before, but I write essentially collections of essays about the beautiful and difficult things in everyday life. And especially I really am passionate about like food and cooking and the table and faith and traditions and the way that we see God's fingerprints everywhere and also kind of the connections between us, what we hold in common. So everything I write sort of centers around those things. You have long been one of my favorite writers. Like before you were a published writer, I remember reading like your emails. I remember one time you sent me an essay, like this was before there were blogs, before anything. Like I have just loved your words for so long. And the reason I've been able to read your words for so long is because we met I mean, I was a teenager. Weren't you a teenager? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. We met at summer camp, but we were working at summer camp in the Ozarks of America. <laughs> Tell and me. I will, I will jump in here. I perceived you to be like, if anybody belonged at this camp, you belonged. I remember your ponytails and your bows and your little plastic shorts and your sorority shirts and camp was a world unto itself and you fit in there all the way. And I just like categorically did not. And it was very clear. I was not a Southerner. I, you know, was from the Midwest, but went to school in California. None of it made, I loved it. I loved it so much, but none of it made sense to me and nobody thought I fit in. Okay, but I'm so glad you said that because I agree with you. Like I was all American camper counselor. Like I did all the things. I knew all the cheers. I knew every part of it, that culture. I loved it. And I, and also you were different. But I think one of the reasons that I was so attracted to you as a friend was because you were different. So like now that we're talking about this, did you feel like those of us with our ponytails and bows were you like, all right, with these girls? Or were <laughs> No, I loved it. It was like going to a foreign country, but not like England, like real foreign, but also being completely charmed by it. And also, 
I didn't want to like pretend I was one of you. That would have never worked. I just wanted to be nearby to all of it because I thought it was wonderful. So it was just, it was such a good place for me. And then now when I talk to friends, they're like, really? You? I'm like, I know, I know. It's just as crazy as you think, you know, especially because it had a real athletic component to it. It was not really my jam. I was like, am I teaching kids how to identify birds and snakes again? They have fully caught on to the fact that I don't know how to play any sports, but it was great. It was so fun. But see, I perceived you like the differences that you had to every other woman or girl at that time at that camp really stood out to me because you were so strong-minded and you had tattoos, first of all. That was a really big deal. That was a, that was a really big deal. Yes. Yes. Then it was. Then and there, it was a really big deal. I mean, at the time, that represented edginess to me. Like I was like, she has tattoos. Now I feel like I can't even think of an adult in my life besides my husband and I that doesn't have tattoos. But at the time, I had not met anyone like you. And I've said this a hundred times over the years on social media and my book. I had not met anyone like you because to me, being a Christian adult woman really looked a certain way, like the evolution of what you're saying, the ponytail bow girls, which is what I was, they grew up to be, for the most part, in my bubble world, a certain type of woman. And then you came in and you were, you liked dark literature like I did, like you liked to read outside of G-rated, whatever. And you sort of stood up to authority. Again, this was not something I had seen in women like very often at all. Even though my mom was a career woman and was a very strong-minded woman, I guess because I hadn't been in her workplace, I hadn't necessarily witnessed it. So truly when you came into my life and I sort of watched you from afar before we became friends, I was like, oh, it was like a light bulb went on of like, I, I don't have to stay on a certain path. Like there are other ways to be. And then, and then to my like, always in never ending flattery, people started associating us together even back then. And I can't remember why we looked similar. We had similar ways of speaking. We end up having similar ways of writing, probably because we have similar ways of speaking. Yes. And even what I remember is we had similar handwriting. Oh yeah. Right. Which is like that. Like I get that if we're, we have sort of similar let's say worldviews and ways of speaking that would translate to, you know, but like handwriting, that's a pretty unusual thing to share, but you would come in and you would make the calendars because you had great handwriting. And so we would be side by side and people didn't always know if it was mine or yours. It's like a funny little connection, even though our lives seem so different at that time. Oh, I completely forgot that detail. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I am thinking of these different connections. A lot of what I write about in the book or a lot of what I've been talking about lately is just those little details like that, that I'd forgotten until you just said it of like, what draws us to people like the happy accidents of, you know, connecting with someone and then how it may change our life or how it influences our life. And, you know, so our handwriting, and then we got to talking about books and then, me just seeing like, oh, there are other ways to be. And those things domino in your life. So then years after we met, I studied abroad and then I moved to LA and like different doors open. But if you don't have that first window open, that first door open, you may, you don't know what you don't know, you know? And so I've always appreciated that you came into my life in this place of, and I loved camp, but in this place of a lot of conformity, 
that you came in as something else. It was just like actually truly life-changing to me. And I am so glad that we got to be friends back then. I am so grateful for it too. And really when you, I think when I look back at my life, there are about like, why did I go there? Why did I do that? Why did I love that? Um, Camp is one of those places where I understand why people who know me now would be like, it does not totally make sense to me. And I would say right back to them, I can tell you about like five or six or maybe nine or 10 people that are still a part of my life from that season. And I'm so grateful. That's Mm. why it was worth it. It was also worth it because this is like a little bit of a rabbit hole, but as I understand my life now, if I had to put like my, my one word, like what am I on this earth to do? The word I would say is hospitality. And what I mean by that is using whatever kind of power or energy I have to gather people together and to connect them to one another and to give them a glimpse of something bigger than all of us. And I learned that at camp because I was on the a programs team planning the most ridiculous parties with costumes and props and skits. And it it was bonkers. Like who let us do that for our jobs? But it was the first time I felt, I know, you know, you have those feelings in your life of like, I was made for this, like all systems firing at the same time. Like if there's a plan, this is part of the plan. And so Mm -hmm. camp for me was about relationships, but it was also about my very first moments of like, I think this is what I'm here for. It's funny because I feel like our years working together at camp showed me the exact opposite of that, of being like, this is not who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. Because you're right. When you met me, I was like all in on not just camp life. It's not really just about camp, but like I said, just like a sort of a, a, a certain way to be and I felt like I wanted to break out of it. And then I did, but you have to, you have to have something to contrast, right? So like I had to see it and be like, okay, this isn't where I fit anymore. I love these people. I love these memories. And now I'm going to exit stage left. And I feel like that happened to me at camp. I was like the foreign exchange student who came into your home country and said, this is so amazing. Also a little weird. And just FYI, there are so many other countries. Would you like to go with me with a URL pass, right? Like it was never my home. So I engaged in it in a, a, maybe a a little more lightly, but I, I think part of why we connected is because you were looking for meaningful alternatives. That's right. And you did say, to continue the metaphor, you did say, do you know how many amazing countries there are? And I was like, (laughs) no, I actually didn't actually. (laughs) And so- it that yeah oh my god that's so amazing okay so then i want to talk about what i write about you in my book i write about you in chapter 2 of my book the question is who was there and in that chapter i'm writing about the people who were there at really significant moments in your life whether it's an acquaintance a neighbor a longtime friend whoever and i write about one of the most significant conversations of my life which took place on an empty apartment balcony late at night in Norman, Oklahoma, when I was as heartbroken as I have ever been in a romantic way. And I didn't know who else to call, not meaning like last resort, but meaning like I didn't know anyone in my life who would understand what I needed to share about that relationship and how I had lost all of my things, all of my everything into that relationship. And I was 
not sure who I was anymore or where I was going. And I felt like the people in my immediate life who lived in my college town, they had seen this writing on the wall for a long time. I couldn't say to them, this is what happened because I was going to get an I told you so back, or I was going to get an eye roll, or I was going to get a, you know, put one foot in front of the other. Like I wasn't getting... I wasn't able to truly share like the depth of my heartbreak with the people in my immediate life. But I felt like from our time together in the summer that I could share with you the hardest part of that breakup and also that you weren't going to judge me. So I called you and that's exactly what happened. It ended up being one of truly one of the most significant conversations of my whole life. Do you even remember that phone call? Oh, I, I remember it. Absolutely. I remember where I was sitting. Remember the house that I lived in. Oh, absolutely. I remember everything about it. Yeah. And and I think especially because it was unusual for us, like we knew each other, but this was like a little bit of an SOS. And so I I felt the significance of that. Yeah. Yeah. It was really huge. And you told me a few things that night that have really stayed with me. One of the, and a lot of them were sort of particular to that situation, but one of them that I always tell people now that I like take from your words and, and share with girlfriends now is you told me to stay in bed. I was having a hard time getting up for work. I was working at the time to save money to move to Los Angeles. And I was like, I'm I'm having a hard time getting out of bed. And everyone in my whole life, if I had shared even an iota of that idea, would have been like, well, you just have to, you have to get up. You have to get in the sunshine. You have to put one foot in front of the other and march forward, chin up, like all of that kind of messaging. And you were like, well, then you just need to stay in bed. And I was so relieved by that idea. Had someone told you that? You know, it's a funny piece of advice because I wouldn't say that's a message I received very often or one that I practiced very often. I learned the hard way a couple times before that when I was in college that there are times when like you just have to go all the way through it, right? You just have to, you have to stop pretending it's not as bad as it is. I think that's what it is. I think what I wanted to say to you was what you're saying to other people in your life is my pain level is at a nine or a 10 and people were reflecting back to you. I hear you're saying you're at a two and a half, get to work. And I think some of all I wanted to say to you was, I see that you're at a nine or a 10 Mm -hmm. and that in itself is really, really valuable. When someone else says, I see that you're legitimately suffering right now. You didn't need advice from me. You didn't need a solution. You needed somebody to say, I see that you're really suffering and it's serious. Yeah. I'm about to cry just thinking about it because the other half of that advice was because then when you get up, it will be a truer getting up. And I remember that phrase. I wrote it in my journal when you said it. I will always remember that you said it will be a truer getting up versus what I felt like I was doing, which I was forcing myself up to go to work. And of course, we all have responsibilities. We all have obligations. But I think you can easily go years and just be in that zombie limbo of in bed and responsibilities and in bed and responsibilities and not really living in either of those places. And when I was able to just stay in bed to the most of my ability at the time, that then when I decided to get up, I really did get up and be like, I am better. Not completely, but you know, like this is a getting up. And that has just like, gosh, it's been, it's been transformative to me. And the other part of what I say, but don't say in that conversation is I had lost my virginity to that boy. And I needed to be able to tell somebody that without like 
ending up on a prayer list or without, (laughs) you know, without being like, well, you got what you deserved then when he dumped you or whatever. Your heartbreak is because you gave up your soul to him or, you know, all of these things that we get about that. And I remember when I told you that part of the story, which I had not told anybody, you were like, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) You were just sort of like, this is a thing that happens, you know, like you were not judgy at all. I mean, you were like the opposite of judgy. You were absolutely almost like, I know, like I can tell you haven't even said it. And I know that that's what you're not saying. Like you just were totally like, yeah. mm -hmm." And I wrote about it in the book because it felt like you were like welcoming me into this womanhoodness of like, "Mm -hmm, yes. And, and I just didn't have anyone else in my life who would have reacted to this bit of information in that same way. (laughs) But I mean, that's, that's some of the gift of friends who are like a little bit outside of our tradition, right? When we're all like kind of in lockstep with each other, it's really hard to sometimes find like you're so invested in each other's choices and you're so, you're all kind of bought into the same set of markers and whatever. It takes someone, right, from another country with like a a passport to another land to say, this is a thing that happens in life and it's Mm -hmm. not as wild or unusual as you think it is. And you are a part of a very wide sisterhood of people who have made this exact same choice and experienced this exact same heartbreak. This is life. Yes. I loved it. I absolutely loved that being your tone. And I like tried to impart it, sort of, you know, pay it forward, if you will. So basically this whole section of this conversation is me sort of publicly thanking you after I publicly wrote it in the book, because I think that the way that we mentor one another or just speak to one another, hear one another, it's just so important. And we take it for granted or we get out of practice or we just like say what we say. And it's not, it doesn't always have to be the most weighty thing in your life, but it's not that light either. We have these conversations that are really important. And when when a friend or someone younger than us, you know, brings something to us, which is what I was doing. And it's like, I want you to hear me or I need you to see me. You know, your your response has, has changed my life. And I want everybody listening to like, think of the moments they've had in their life or also to just think in conversations in the future, just remember like, okay, these, these phone calls can sometimes really be something that people think about for decades after. Well, I, I love you and I'm so honored to have been a part of, I can think of so many conversations that you and I have shared that have been so significant for me. And so to get to do that for each other, it's a huge gift. I am sure that you can agree that literally no one wants to smell bad. But sometimes regular underarm deodorant just isn't cutting it. Or maybe it's not your underarms that need help. With Lumi, you don't have to worry. Lumi is the first of its kind in total body deodorant and is fully safe to use anywhere on your body. It is clinically proven to block odor all day and control it for up to 72 hours. The secret is mandelic acid, where instead of masking odor with a fragrance, it stops the odor before it even starts. 
I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free, as well as pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of bright scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. Use code U for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code U, Y-O-U, at Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass feature so you can change your combination for any reason at any time. Pros sent me some shampoos, some conditioner, and a hair mask that I got to try out for myself. And I have to tell you that I have never had such soft hair as I have right now. I wasn't able to like style it or do anything after the first washing. And I went to run my hands through my hair later in the day. And I was like, why does it feel so good? It was so soft, so smooth. And I had done nothing but shower and brush it. If you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care product system you've ever tried, they will take back the products. No questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take the free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash you. That's pros, P-R-O-S-E dot com slash you, Y-O-U, for 15% off your first order today. Okay, there's a, a few other things I want to talk about. I want to talk about books, which we're going to do in mm-hmm. a minute because you and I both have a great love of books and we have similar overlapping tastes. Mm-hmm. I love to hear what you're reading and liking and also talking about books is just a huge part of this show. But first, because you're such a gifted storyteller, you have such good insights and I just have been learning from you as established for years and years now. I want you to share a few answers to some of the questions that I pose and share your stuff. I'll go first. I pose 10 questions in the main chapters and there's lots of questions sprinkled throughout. And so I've been asking guests to sort of answer some of their favorite questions from the book. And so I wondered if you wanted to share a que- uh, an answer to a question or two. Maybe we can start with magical moments. Mm-hmm. Yes, Absolutely. And I mean, you know this, and I've told you this so many different ways and times, but I'm going to keep saying it. I love your books so much. I, you know, there's this thing where you, you love somebody and you love like their life and their house and their family, and you know who they are in like real life terms. And then they make this other thing that goes out into the world separate from them. And I'm sure you've experienced this. Sometimes it's really different. You're like, oh, okay. I didn't, I totally did not know that's what you were going to do. Cool, cool, cool. I totally support you. Yours was like, oh, this is everything I wanted you to do. And I love it so much. And I have just shared it with everybody in my life. You did such a beautiful job on this book. Good job. Thank you for saying that because you 
again, as like my long, long time friend, you published a long time before me. I've loved your words. And so I feel like this book was a really long time coming for me. Like I've wanted to be an author for a really long time. And so to hear those kind words from you, it means everything to me. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. So um, magical moments. This one was an easy one. I mean, I can think of magical moments in my life over the years. There was a day where I felt the strongest sense, and you can use whatever word you want to, you know, I would call it God's voice or his invitation. It could be the universe, it could be all the different things, whatever word you would use that would capture a sense of being guided by something outside of yourself in a benevolent and loving way. I love you. And this is the path for you. Okay. For, and you and I have talked about this for maybe three years, at least, I think Aaron would say it was 10 years and it probably was. Aaron had wanted to move away from our hometown. Every year he said, is this our year for an adventure? And every year I was like, like a trip. And he was like, no, (laughs) he really wanted, you know, he We both grew up, you know, we grew up like 20 minutes apart from each other. We didn't meet until after college, but he went to college locally, had worked locally. We had moved a couple hours away and moved back. But overwhelmingly, our life was very, very much centered in one area. And I was like, lovely. This is is what I want to do for my life. And Aaron was like, I don't want to. I want an adventure. I want a different way of living. I want a different lifestyle. I want different people around me. And it was really difficult between us. It was probably the first point in our marriage where I felt like I have always, we have always known the things that brought us together, but all of a sudden the list of things that we want that are different is getting longer and longer and longer. Like it felt a little bit like I was like, let's say 70 years old. I wanted like a farmhouse. I wanted to think about like countertops. I wanted um, like fancy sweatpants. And Aaron wanted really good coffee and progressive culture and urban everything. And we were both looking at each other like, uh-oh, like this is, that that's not like a tweak. That's not like a, like we want different things. Mm-hmm. And there were so many things we had in common that we wanted that were shared, but this was an increasing tension between us. And so every so often we would go travel and, and we would interview for different jobs or we would go different places we thought we, we might want to live. Um, I was just thinking about this today. We went to, so we lived outside Chicago. We went to Grand Rapids and Madison and Seattle and San Francisco and Southern California and Houston and Nashville. And that's just all the ones I can think of. I think there were more. And for three years, it it felt like every place we went, it was like Goldilocks. Like this is a good place, but it is not our place every single time. And it wasn't just me saying this is not our place because I definitely did that sometimes. It was both of us saying this is just not our place. Like we love it or it's energizing or it's beautiful or we love it for a weekend. But like this doesn't feel like you try on a sweater and you're like, this is not my sweater. It got to the point where we were like, is it about us? Do we not fit anywhere in the world? (laughs) Have we done something wrong that we need to look at like in a, I don't know, cosmic way? Like what is happening? And we had started this little family tradition of visiting New York City in the summer. And we went back for either the second or the third time. And we had a day. It was a Sunday. It was July 1st. And every single thing that happened from morning till night, 
felt like a door opening, a door opening, a door opening, a door opening. We had never considered living in New York. We thought like, who lives here? I don't know. I like it, but I just didn't even consider it. And from the church to the seminary, to the apartment, to the friends, to the conversations in the course of one very long kind of magical day, the next morning we woke up and we were like, are we moving here? And then we did. And after so many years of feeling like the doors were closing so unmistakably to watch them open, we were just like little kids. Like, could this, this still happens for us? There's still magic for us. There's still, somebody's still looking out for us. And then here's the last thing I will tell you about it. It was an amazing day and I could tell you all the details of it, but the very last piece of it was at the last second, I got a text from a friend that I didn't know very well. And she was like, after your dinner, after your conversation with so-and-so, I want to take you out for a drink with a couple friends. And I was like, sure, let's do that. So we've already had world's longest day. I've already preached at church. I've already been a lot of, to a lot of neighborhoods. We've already had a lot of conversations. A lot of things have happened. And we end up at a New York club that has, I am not kidding you an Axl Rose impersonator who tap dances and lots of belly dancers. And we were like, this is the most New York thing that's ever happened in our lives. And I got home at like, I thought I was going to like have a glass of rosé somewhere nearby. And I like get back to this apartment that we're staying in at like three in the morning. And when Aaron wakes up in the morning, there are lots of glow necklaces in the bathroom because I came home wearing like a lot of them. And he was like, I have a lot of questions about last night. I was like, same. I also have a lot of questions. So one of the things I love about that story was there's like so much real magic and then also like a tap dancing Axl Rose, which was just exactly that last bit of magic that we needed. So you moved there to go to seminary, right? We moved there to move. And the seminary part was a really interesting development that made it all make sense and made it all work. Mm-hmm. So, but it, we wouldn't have done it without that, but it wasn't like we were looking at seminaries around the country. Right. It was like one of the doors that opened in that amazing process was here's this very special seminary with like a really unusual sense of like-mindedness in this neighborhood that we love with friends who like, it was very much, it was all kind of woven together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm only asking that because I've been thinking about people after the year of the pandemic, obviously your story is from several years ago, but a lot of people are changing up their lives now, Mm -hmm. right? And they're looking for an adventure like Aaron was, or they're, you know, looking for a new path or or whatever. And so I know as people are listening to your magical moment, I love hearing from people's magical moments. It's one of my favorite chapters in the book. But as people are like thinking, what has this shaken loose in me this, this year of the pandemic? Like, is this what I want my marriage to look like? Is this what I want my career to look like? A lot of people are spinning on these things. And so I do wonder sometimes the decisions in our lives, even the biggest ones are like the easiest ones, because like you said, they just, they, they flow to us. The doors open. It makes it, it would would be almost weird to say no to it. It's like, and now this is where you're going. That's totally how this felt. Yes, absolutely. And for Aaron, part of the seminary thing was he was saying like, I've been doing the same kind of professional work for almost 20 years. I've had the answers for a long time. What a gift and what an investment in my future work to get to be the person with questions for a while, to get to learn from people with answers. To it. So that has been really energizing for both of us to say, you know, we had to, yeah, we had to be answer people for a long time and to get 
a little bit of a reprieve from that and ask a lot of good questions and learn from a lot of really smart people. It's been a huge gift. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I love that you just said that part because I do sometimes feel like it's hard to to feel like you are the, always the answer person. And that's never exactly been my role necessarily, but I'm married to someone that way. And mm-hmm. so it is appealing to be like, you know what, let's just like change up our roles a little bit. Like let's become the student instead of the teacher type of thing. Oh my God, I love that. Okay. And then, and then another thing that we want to talk about that I'm super excited about another question from the book that you are willing to answer is when did it change? God, this is a big question. And there's just so many, so many things we could talk about. So this is a funny one. Um, that I have not talked about publicly, I think like maybe not at all. And, but as I was thinking about this today, I was like, you know what, who could I do this with? I could do this with Laura. So the reason I've never talked about this is because culturally our, our culture does a terrible job of talking about things that are heavily gendered. Right. And so what I want to tell you, and I feel so weird about this. It's funny that I'm nervous. No, I'm not pregnant. That's not where we're going here. I am in the middle of menopause, which is about 10 years early. And the reason I want to talk to you about it is because it has changed my life and it's been so profoundly difficult and disorienting. And I feel like I'm in like full PSA mode. If one woman (laughs) could figure out that this is what's happening to her and start to make some forward motion in terms of understanding how to minimize the chaos or at least have a category for it or get some good medical care or try some things, it would feel tremendously worth it to me because it totally caught me off guard because it's so early. It was not on my radar for like any of the possibilities, any of the solutions, but I, when did it change? About four years ago, I remember saying to a friend, my body has lost its mind. Like everything. Things don't taste the same. And my skin is different. And my hair is different. And I don't sleep anymore. And I gain weight in different places. And my mental health is just like a disaster scenario, but not not enough of one thing to know what one thing we might try to solve. It's like the body and the spirit I used to know and walk around in is gone. And I am living in an imposter body and spirit, and it is very disorienting. But what did you even know? Like, I wouldn't even know what to do. Did you call a therapist? Did you call a doctor? Did you call your mom? Like, what did you even do? All of the above. And I didn't know what was happening until I went to just a routine appointment at the OB, my first one in New York. And she was like, "Uh, how long have you been in menopause? I was like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Shauna. I moved here from Illinois. What are you talking about? And she was like, oh, I'm looking at your hormone levels. You are like full blown. This is a major thing. You must have really been suffering. I was like, I'm so glad you asked because I am. And I didn't know what was happening at all. So that's how I found out. Wait, you were under 40 then, right? How old were you? 39? I was 39 when it started. And then, which is very early and not true of the other women in my family. And then I was 42 when the doctor first talked to me about it. Did you think, you know, because some of the things that you just said, the symptoms or the effects or whatever, you could ascribe it to like a stress response or, you know, I I don't even know what, like, did you, were you trying to solve it in a different way kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Totally. I mean, I was changing my diet. I went to lots of different doctors. I was trying different like sleep hygiene things. I was going to a ton of therapy. I was 
yeah, taking lots of natural supplements. I just, I thought it was just like a couple hard years and a lot of change and maybe try to cut out dairy. I don't know, but it, it, you know, it never, nothing ever made sense enough for me to make any progress with it. And the, the through line was everything that used to work doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Both in terms of physical health and mental health, the things that used to work for me to bring me a sense of like groundedness and health and balance, those things were just like useless tools at this point. And so as soon as she said that, I was like, wait a minute, a whole lot of things make sense now that didn't mm-hmm. make sense before. So, you know, a million years ago, I wrote a lot about miscarriage and multiple miscarriages and infertility. And I didn't really want to, I didn't intend to do that. It was just at the forefront of what I was experiencing then. It was so central to everything in my life. And then I kept hearing from women like, oh, I never heard anybody say that. Oh, it's so important that you were willing to say that. And so I think that's, I wish I had heard someone vaguely my age talking about this because maybe I would have said like, oh, could that be me? Could that be the thing that connects all the dots for me? And it's not for everybody, but now that I have that as a reference point, I'm able to try to figure out meaningful, helpful solutions in a totally new way. Have you circled back to feeling more like yourself? I mean, like, you know, you said you felt like you weren't yourself without getting like into the ins and outs of all of menopause. Do you feel like that then you were able to? Um, No, not yet. But it's like if you stay up till five o'clock in the morning and then the next day you're sort of cranky, you're not like, oh my goodness, what's happening to me? You're like, it might be because I stayed up till five o'clock in the morning, right? You at least have like somewhere to hang it mentally. Mm. This is part of that. And so I totally have not found all the right solutions and I still don't sleep. I'm like basically nocturnal at this point. It's very strange. And I've never been like that in my life. And there's a lot of other stuff about it that just feels like tricky and hard, but at least I have a category or like a container in which to put it. And as I try to read about it, there's such like a shocking lack of literature about it. There's such a shocking lack of conversation about it. And it's all very vague. Like people will say, for example, you might get hot flashes for um, between two years and eight years. I'm sorry, that's like a range. I'm going to need you to, nope, that range does not work for me. I want us to live in a culture, like, right, if men went through menopause, there'd be like a, everybody would get a sabbatical for five years while they sorted out and. Oh, we'd have like a cure probably. We'd have a, we'd have a vaccine for it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But like, I I want that and that I, I have needed support and help and information so badly. I, I want us to do better as a culture. I'm so glad you talked about that because I agree with you. I don't hear women talking about it, even if they aren't uh, a decade early like you were, which is especially a reason to talk about it because it can be very confusing if it's not on your radar to think about, like you said. But even women who are older, it's just reduced to a joke or like a stereotype. And I can think of a few women of a certain age who have written about it or or talked about it. But it's sort of one of those things that it, you know, it can, I'm sure it is tricky, like postpartum or something, you know, postpartum doesn't look the same to everyone. It can look like extreme anger to someone and it can look like depression to someone else. And it's hard to figure out if your symptoms are matching 
this very vague notion of postpartum or menopause, like you're saying, but then when you hear just one woman, like describe her experience, what it feels like in her body or what it felt like to her, then you're like, ah, yes, that's, that's me. And so we need a hundred voices saying what it feels like for them so that you can be like, okay, I'm not the only one who has this symptom or feels like this or whatever, you know, it's so important. I agree a thousand percent. I think if there is a book where a hundred different women talk about their experience with it, like I can't wait to read it. So <laughs> that that book should exist because we need to know, we need to see ourselves kind of mirrored and included in these important life experiences. And I think the worst thing is feeling like you're the only one and that there's no one to talk with about it. Well, speaking of books, this is a good segue because I want to talk about Mm -hmm. books with you. I also want to talk about your books. You just mentioned, is this something that you think you'll write about or what are you writing? Because the, the world needs more books from you. Oh, thank you. Um, I think I will write about it only because I have tended to, I write about what's at the forefront of my experience. And this has been a major part of my experience the last couple of years. And, and because part of my job as a writer, I think is opening conversations that aren't being had other places. It's not my only job, but it's one of them. And it's being, I mean, frankly, it's just exactly 100% what you did with your book. It's being willing to go first. If I can talk about a part of my life that's been tricky or painful or awkward or difficult to figure out, and it helps another woman have a meaningful conversation with her neighbor or her sister or her mom, like that's my job. So I will write it about, write about it a little bit. And I, so I'm doing a thing this week, actually, that I haven't done before. I, with Present Over Perfect, my most recent book, which was still not very recent, I had figured out some ways that at least my process worked and it probably wouldn't work for anybody else, but I knew like my way of getting it done. And then this one just has not followed that at all. It's like when you have an easy pregnancy and then like, it's just a really hard one. And you're like, Oh, I guess all of my wisdom from that first one is out the window. So Wait, you're talking about the writing process. You had a writing process that worked for you. I would say like writing into editing, right? Like mm-hmm. I I knew how I was going to write it. And then I knew exactly at what point I wanted my team to get involved. We had done the same thing previously multiple times and it just like worked like a charm. And I love my team and I've worked with them for a really long time. And so, but I am inviting my team in a lot earlier this time, which I've never done and feels like... Like, I won't even call it a manuscript. I just keep calling it a file or a document. (laughs) It is just a total mess. I like, I can't believe I'm showing it to any living human, but I need their perspective earlier in the process this time because I've just been staring at this document for way too long and I can't tell what it is. I can't tell what's good. I can't tell what's bad. I can't tell what's an extra 30,000 words that we don't need or what's desperately missing and I have to write about. I've just like lost it. It's like, you know how every once in a while, I don't know why this is what popped into my mind, but I basically know how to get myself dressed, right? Like I know I do that. I go places. I decide what to wear. But every once in a while, you find yourself in a place where you're like, I'm going to need one of my best friends to come over and whatever she pulls out of the closet, I'm putting on my body and we're done. Like I just need that extra. Somebody needs to tell me what to do. And that's where I am with this book. So it will be a lot about our move to New York about kind of midlife, about being willing to be a beginner again, about making big changes at the time when most people are like kind of settling down into their kind of forever path and the energy and life that comes with kind of shaking it all up in the middle. 
but it'll also be about menopause and loss and some really difficult transitions and ways our lives have changed in a million different ways. So my strong suit is not writing only about one thing, as you know. <laughs> I tend to do like a little bit of a junk drawer approach. So it'll be about, you know, all of those things. And I think I'm going to try and figure finish it up this spring so that it can come out a year from now. Are you turning in this document that yes, they're going to help you with? Do you have ego around it now that you're on like book five or whatever it is? I'm just curious for my own self as a newbie, if they come back and they say like, we're going to need you to start over <laughs> or. Oh, yeah. No, no. I have like the most loving and meaningful thing they can do is shoot straight with me about it. And I am very prepared for the answer to be like, we're going to just go ahead and put this in the trash for you. <laughs> And you just start typing something new. The worst thing would be if they felt like they couldn't tell me that. And then I write like a garbage book because no one will tell me the truth about it. You know what I mean? So I really, I, I am asking, and one thing I have learned along the way is you don't want to ask 50 people that kind of question. I'm asking exactly three people. And they're people that I've worked with for a really long time that I respect for very specific reasons. And I'm sending with my document some really specific questions. This is what I'm concerned about. This is what I think I'm getting wrong. Should this section be included? Are we missing this, this, and this? I'm not asking them to edit it. I'm just asking them to look at what exists now and assess it. What goes in the trash? What needs to be transformed? What needs to be added? I think the ego comes in. I want to have all of the hard conversations now so that we can write a great book together, right? It's like going to the doctor, like, don't flatter me. Tell me what's wrong so I can get healthy. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I want from them. Yeah, that's, that's a very evolved writer answer because I, I don't know how to think about it like that yet. Also, and then we won't spin off too hard into writing process, but I prepared myself for the editing process of writing my book. Like I did all this meditation around shedding my ego of, you know, if the editor was going to be like, this is trash. Like I thought I was going to take that really personally, but actually that was not what was hard about editing to me. I, like you did appreciate it when she was like, this whole part has to go <laughs> like I was like, oh, okay. Thank you for telling me. I found rewrites to be the hard part. So if she's like, this is a good point, but you're just, you're not really landing it. Like you need to like <laughs> redo this whole part. I'd be like, oh, that's so much harder for me than just complete cutting or changing a word or whatever. Like I didn't know with my first book how to, I mean, you know, you just don't know it till you go through it. And I didn't know what it was going to be like to be edited. And I, I prepared a lot of ego to be edited, what I really needed to work on was actually like a skill set, not not my heart. <laughs> I totally get that. One of the um, mistakes I used to make is people they would say, um, "This part's not totally working. Can you just come up with a story instead of this story that's like about this?" And I'd be like, "Sure, sure, 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 sure." <laughs> and I get back to my desk and be like, "No, I can't. I cannot." In all of my life, I cannot think of one situation that corresponds to this point, and I'm going to sit here till I die. I just can't. Or I'd try to wedge something in. They'd be like, no, you're nice try. I'd be like, I know, I can't. But yeah, I, I think it's, I think editing is a really loving act. I think it's, we are all committed to the same project and you can love me, love me by shooting really straight with me about what's working and not working right now. 
I love that quote. I'm going to put that quote on social media. Editing is a really loving act, whether or not you're a writer, any kind of creator, or even just like decluttering your house, whatever, like editing the extraneous things in your life can be an act of love. And I love that so much. Okay. But let's actually talk about other people's books though. (laughs) Okay. Yes. We could do this all day long. We can do this all day long. Listeners, Shauna and I love to talk books. We've talked books now for 20 plus years and we both love to read. We both read widely like a variety of things, but we like a lot of the same things, but not always. We don't have exactly matching tastes. So I am dying to hear from you. Let's start with two of your favorite books of all time. And I don't even care how you take that question. It can be life changers or it can just be enjoyment or it can be whatever. Two of your favorite books of all time. I'm sure you've heard me say this 9 million times, Hemingway's Movable Feast, which is his account of living in Paris after the war as a young writer. I love Paris. I was a French major. I started speaking French when I was seven years old. It's like my, like I have a really deep affection for Paris and the way Hemingway writes about being a writer in Paris just makes it as magical as you want to believe it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Hemingway in general, um, but this one especially is like movable feast. I reread it every year. I give it away all the time. It is like fully its own magic. Do you have like a time of year that you reread it? No, no, that's a good question. I don't have it like connected to a specific like season or point on the calendar. I just know that I always come back to it. It's, it's one of my like comfort books. Are you a rereader in general besides that one? Mostly not. There are a handful just for comfort. If I'm like really like heavily in distress, there are a handful of of novels, but mostly food writing that I come back to. And that feels really like nourishing and nurturing. This is where we diverge. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. That is true. Yeah. I'm like food writing, huh? I got nothing on that. Okay. Well, then what's the, (laughs) what's the second one? Well, this is one, the one I feel like you would totally predict is um, Anne Lamott's Traveling Mercies. Of course. Of course. And, you know, I went to college in Santa Barbara while she was writing as she still is in Northern California. And she was a novelist and um, nonfiction writer that everyone in our English department was just crazy about. And so she would come down and speak at UCSB and all of us from Westmont would go down the hill and listen to her. And we just loved everything she did. And then the year after I graduated from college, she wrote a memoir about her faith. And it was like, all of my worlds colliding. Like this novelist and essay writer that I loved so deeply, that was so connected to my life in California and to my academic life, all of a sudden was talking about the same faith tradition that I also came from in a literary, really sense-oriented, really story-oriented way. And so for me, it was two things. It was I loved her so much. And then I learned that part of that thing we hold in common. And then also I had never read someone writing about their faith in that way. And it was like, it opened a door for me. Everything I ever do from here on out, I will be trying to live up to the kind of the genre she created in that book. And I'll never get there, but I will keep trying because what she made clicked in such a deep way inside of me. I had that like that's what I want to make. 
Mm-hmm. She was such a pioneer in that type of writing. I also remember, well, I read that book because you recommended it and possibly you even recommended it in that fateful phone call or some, some time around that exact same time, because I read her and, you know, was listening to you at the same time. So, so you and Anne are like tied in my mind forever. But also when I read Traveling Mercies, what stood out to me as a book, her as a writer is that obviously this was pre blogging, pre social media, all of that pre the type of internet writing that we're used to now. She was the first person that I read who wrote casually. I mean, I'm sure it's, she just makes it look easy and it's not easy, but she wrote casually like, like you were besties, like you were talking and it was so effective. So if I had read writing like that before, it would have sounded juvenile or like amateur. She wrote like that. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know you could write like this. You know, casually is the only word I can think of. And it'd be so powerful. Like I had not read that kind of mix, you know, that that formula. And it was, it was amazing. Now, of course, because I've gone back and read her stuff, which is means so much to me now. But I think if you were just now discovering her style of writing, you don't even realize how formative it was and how much of a pioneer she was because the internet has made everyone a casual writer or like everyone writes like they speak when that used to sort of, it used to be so much more formal. She, like, I think she changed the game. I don't think she doesn't get enough credit in the mainstream for, for the way that she wrote and how amazing it was. I agree a thousand percent. Yeah, no, I completely, totally agree. I think she wrote in a personal and detail-oriented and kind of she invited us into her thoughts and feelings and the details of her daily life at the same time that she was talking about very weighty topics like religion, like sobriety, like family in a way that people had not done. And again, now you th- everybody does it. It's like what people do, she changed the game for sure. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about two more recent books, like in the last year, let's say, two of your favorites that really stand out. Well, this is, I was, so these two first came to mind, just like, right, like these are the two. And it's so unusual and so interesting to me that of the four, I've chosen four nonfiction books. That's not like me. I am a total, like fiction is my first love. I love novels. I love stories. But it's interesting that my two all-time favorites and my two from the last year are nonfiction. I think there's all sorts of things we could glean from that. I think some of it is, and I'm, I'm in a really significant like learning season in my life. And I think we absolutely learn from fiction. Of course we do. But there's a there are times when some of the uh, sometimes nonfiction writing comes to us a little bit un, unmediated through story, and it can hit us in a different way. So mm-hmm. the first one is Life is in the Transitions by Bruce Feiler. This one I'm crazy about it. I have an old friend named John who you've probably met over the years and he and I keep in touch, but like he lives in Chicago and we live in New York and he texted me this summer and was like, Hey, keep your eye out. I'm sending a book that really affected me. And I think it's really going to affect you. And it's this book called life is in the transitions. And it's a person who has been a writer who has been through some of his own very significant life transitions, then did a major study interviewing people about the big changes in their lives and all the different ways that we have to sort of make peace with and re-narrate our stories because of what we have experienced and how people do that sort of well and poorly and what it means when you resist taking on the new narrative or what it means when you kind of allow yourself to fully metabolize this life change. And 
some of what it does is it normalizes major life transitions, right? You're like, I'm not the only person on this earth who feels totally thrown off by the last year or five years or whatever. Mm-hmm. It also helps you realize that there's a particular like rhythm and path through this. This is how people come through the other side of hard changes um, and not just through, but a lot of times better, a lot of times with a more joyful attitude toward life or deeper relationships or more perspective. Mm-hmm. Like this might not be the bottom this might be the beginning. It's amazing. I love it so much. I'm sitting here with like rapt attention because this sounds like exactly what I need to read or what I want to read right now. Jeff and I have been talking a lot in the last few months about how we feel, we both feel at the same time that our family is moving into a different era. And again, this sort of goes back to, we've had a year of the pandemic. We've had a year of being together alone in our house, just the four of us. (laughs) And maybe we're just ready for a different era, but like also just what it has shaken loose and what we want our next decade to look like. Our kids are going to be teenagers. Like, you know, we're just sort of thinking like that. And we do feel like we are moving into a new era. And so this sounds exactly like what I want to read. Also, someone just pointed out to me the other day about my book that a lot of things in my book are about, they didn't use the word transitions, but sort of overlapping themes of when did it change? What were your pivotal decisions? Like these things of, of forks in the road. And so obviously this is a a theme that I like to return to myself because I like to look at my like own life's narrative arc and see, you know, what's happening. So anyway, that's such a good one. And I haven't even heard of that book for some reason. Tell me your other one. Maggie Smith, the poet wrote Mm. a book called keep moving. Mm -hmm. So I love her poetry. And this has been the last couple of years of my life. Like I I feel like there are seasons for prose and seasons for poetry. And I have been in a poetry season lately. And so I have a couple um, of her poems kind of near me all the time. Her poem, Good Bones, you know, I just think is extraordinary about how we sell the idea of a beautiful world to our our children, even though we know it can be very painful. And I just love it so much. And so then she went through a very painful divorce and started writing like little post-its to herself on social media for like how to keep going through this massive transition season, through the season of loss. And obviously there's a theme here for me, but also for all of us right now. And so, and because she's a poet, they always had this edge of kind of reaching for like larger themes. They felt like kind of handholds to a bigger world when I was in a really difficult, painful season. I kept coming back to like, whenever I saw one of her posts, I was like, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you, my friend, Maggie, who I've never met. <laughs> and then they put the they put all of those reflections together in a book with some essays about kind of what prompted each season or each section. And it felt so timely and so beautiful. And that's another one that I've just given out. Like, if you tell me something major has happened in your life, you can barely get the sentence out. I have Amazon primed you both of those books. Like, for sure. You're like, we are not even done talking. You don't even know what happened. I'm like, it's no problem. They're on their way. Well, I'm going to Amazon Prime them to myself because I haven't read either of these. I'm actually surprised. Only su- I don't know why I'm surprised, but like, you know, we read a lot of the same stuff, but these are exactly what I feel like I need this spring. You know, it sounds like I don't read a lot of poetry. Well, here's my weird thing. I have two weird things. I don't, I profess to not liking poetry and not liking short stories. And then what happens is I read poetry and I read short stories and I like think they're amazing. <laughs> Totally. Yes. I think I, I love the reader experience of long fiction. 
Like, I don't want something to be over in 12 pages. I want to spend a lot of time with you people, with these characters, you know? But then I I feel a little bit the same way that a great poem or a great short story, the power of that in a relatively short word count, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's it's doing something different to your brain, just like, you know, Mm -hmm. music is doing something different than reading, but like, it's still this can be this really profound experience. And so I don't know why I discount poetry and short stories when it's clear that I like both poetry and short stories. <laughs> Whatever. Just, just me. Okay. I loved our conversation so much. This was so fun. We could honestly do this for hours and hours. And I appreciate you coming to 10 Things to Tell You because I've always wanted to have you on. And so now we finally are together. Well, I mean, you know this, you are one of my all-time favorites. I love you. I learn from you. I am grateful for any time we can ever be in conversation together, whether it's via Zoom or sitting in your house or mine or anywhere. So you are such a treasure in my life. And I love talking with you every chance I get. Oh, thank you, friend. I hope that we can see each other in person soon. I am thrilled beyond that the world is tiny, tiny starting to open up. And I feel like I will never take for granted being in the presence of friends in real life ever again. Oh, we keep joking about it. I'm going to be such a snuggle bug. I'm just going to sit right up next to people and like touch them. And oh, I'm going to be totally socially unacceptable. I I miss all of that so much. I cannot wait. And you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.